Hello, and welcome to Growing the Top Line, a podcast where I interview leading executives and CEOs to get their perspectives on growth strategy. My name is Cliff Farah, President and CEO of The Beacon Group, a growth strategy consulting firm. Join us as we dig deeper into the process of, well, growing the top line. Everyone, I would like to introduce Tom Latin. Tom, thanks for making time to talk today. Always good to get to spend some time with you. You're welcome, uh, Cliff. I love hanging out with you. Yeah, all right. Well, eh, opinions vary on that one, but thank you. Um, <laughs> hey, let me let me uh, read you all a little bit about Tom. Tom is uh, the Vice President of Product Planning and Strategic Technologies at ZT Systems. Tom joined ZT in 2020 to focus on accelerating key technology investments and to equip ZT system customers with capabilities to distinguish themselves in the markets they serve. Prior to joining ZT, Tom held a variety of leadership roles at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. He led the ProLine and CloudLine Systems Product Management Organization, responsible for driving product management and all for all ProLine racks, ProLine towers, CloudLine services, and HPE software. Um, his team was accountable for integrating the capabilities of traditional engineered systems with the rapidly evolving requirements of the open system market. Leading product, technology, go-to-market, and supplier strategies for these categories, Tom was responsible for the overall revenue and gross margin for the multi-billion dollar mass market business, which is where you and I first met. Yes? That's right. Um, Tom joined HPE in 1986 and led strat planning, marketing, and engineering and supply chain teams focused on enterprise server, enterprise storage, and personal computing products. So when we get into our discussion, Tom, clearly, you know, there's significant expertise here. Uh, both practically and and from a strategic standpoint. So as vice president GM of the server operations business, he was responsible for the vision, strategy, and execution of the hard drive, memory, solid state storage, network adapter, and local power infrastructure product lines. He also managed the high growth server OEM business and directed the transformation of the server business into a configure to order model. Under his leadership for product planning and marketing, and then later for business strategy and planning, the high-volume HPE ProLiant server business developed a strong market leadership position in the density-optimized server market. As a key member of HP printing and personal systems business, Tom served as the Director of Market and Technology Strategy for the PC Global Business Unit. He was responsible for guiding key technology products spanning multiple business segments. In addition to this, Tom served as the Director of Strategy and Planning for the Notebook Global Business Unit at HP and was responsible for the overall vision and strategy for the $20 billion notebook computer business. Tom has also been recognized in leading product strategy, partnership development, marketing communication, business direction. Previously, he was a dem- he was a product development engineer focused on high performance, fault tolerant disk subsystems for the System Pro and ProLiant servers. Tom graduated summa cum laude from Duke, very nice, earning a bachelor of science degree in electrical engineering and computer science. God bless you, those are two very difficult majors. Uh, he also, yeah. <laughs> He also holds a Master of Business Administration degree from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke and a Master of Pastoral Studies from the University of St. Thomas. So, wow. That, that was is, a walk down memory lane right there. That was impressive, right? <laughs> that, is a, that is a heck of a story. Um, so, so, Tom, thanks, thanks for making time to talk about growth. I mean, you're somebody, when I talk about, you know, when, when I think about my clients and the people I get to work with, there are like... There are some people who get it and there are other people who don't. And that's a horrible way to think about things, but I think it's true. And one of my one of my other interviews, um, the term uh, tone deaf for strategy was used. Right. Like some people are just they really struggle with how to think through and and um, 
you know, understand strategy development, growth strategy development. Do you think that's true? Do you think that, that, you know, it's something you either know or you don't know, you can learn or you can't learn? Uh, I, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think there's, there's a predisposition, right? Some of us are just kind of wired. Um, I would say for strategy in general, not necessarily even growth strategy, but just kind of uh, strategic thought. Um, but I, but I do think it's learnable. Um, and I think that in many cases, like, uh, in, in my own case, I can think about attributes of my thought processes, um, that are the result of the people that I've had a chance to engage with, right? Mentors, coaches, people that I look up to. Um, that are kind of, um, you know, thought process, thought, thought mechanisms that probably didn't exist, right, yeah. um, um, before. So I, there's a little bit of predisposition, but I think it's learnable too. So were you part of like a mentor program or, you know, did you, it was nothing learn on the job? Yeah, nothing formal, just on the job. Do you, do you remember your first ask to be a planner, like a real str- a strategic thinker, the, the first time you were given that charter? Uh, I do. <laughs> well, tell me this. Tell me the story. <laughs> I was actually running product management for a portion of the the um, server product line, and okay. I think as as a result of some of the things that we were doing, this was actually kind of back to that that um, era where what you just described was the density, the the entry into the density server um, okay. space. So this was okay. when rack mount servers, and we started talking in terms of use. Um, uh, first uh, became part of the vocabulary. And um, the uh, the GM of the server business, after we had been doing some work in this uh, area, came to me one day and said, you know, hey, Tom, I, I need to reestablish my strategic planning team, right? Yep. I'd like you to lead that. And by the way, you need to build the team out, right, at the same time. Um, so that, yeah, that, was a, that was one of those kind of career inflection moments for sure. So what did you do? So suddenly you're responsible for strategy. What, what was your pro? Like, how the hell did you learn? I got a couple of couple of people on the team that were very very strategic thinkers, um, and uh, uh, man, I it probably just talked to. Well, certainly absorbed a lot from them, right? You yeah. know, teach me what you know. Um, yeah. uh, but also just try started trying some things, right? Experimenting with uh, frameworks and planning processes and. Uh, um, kind of dialing back to some of the the you know business school experience and saying which of that right. is actually applicable here and which isn't. And, right. Um, so it's probably more of an experimentation, trial by trial, uh, trial and error. Yeah, I think you know it's funny. I've I've been lucky enough to work with and talk to a lot of people um, over the years who have had that you know that transition, that responsibility, <clears throat> and I think f- for most of them, there's a story like that. Like either there was a you know, there there was a, a a senior person who took them under the wing and taught them how to how to do this and kind of developed them on the job, or they were thrown into it and they just were looking for tools to use. And I think a lot of what um, you know we've got in this book talks to those two kinds of uh, people, right? One is a new practitioner who's 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 never really done this before, and then the other one is maybe the seasoned practitioner who's taking someone under their wing and needs to give them a, a process and vocabulary to think through, right? So mm-hmm. that's yep. that's kind of, that's kind of the goal. Um, let's talk about goals. So when you think about setting a um, a strategy up for your organization, wherever you are, whether you're you know in your former role or your current role, how how do you think about goals? What are the main kinds of things you worry about when you're considering goal setting? 
Um, <clears throat> I do think I, I'm a big believer in uh, dreaming big in this um, in general, but especially in the strategy formulation process. Okay, I like uh, that. Because, and I think that I think that many planning processes um, fail to reach their full potential um, because the goals that are established initially are natural extrapolations for where the the business or the organization or the, the function is. Okay. Uh, so I think kind of big bold goals, um, and many times you know we refer to these as BHAGs, very yep. uh, big, big uh, hairy audacious goals, um, are um, in the in the strategy planning process are enriching, right? In the execution phase can actually be extremely demotivating, right? If the goals are too big and too broad yeah. and not achievable. Yeah. But in the strategy formulation phase, um, it forces our thought process to think about, you know, what would have to be true for that crazy idea, that crazy goal um, to actually be the end state here. So do you sandbag? Do you set two goals? Do you set like the one that you share outside the group? And then do you have like the internal crazy goal that you're thinking about? Well, I think, but it, well, it is, I mean, in, in terms of strategy formulation, there's just, it's just one, right? Or it's just, one set of very big kind of grand, crazy goals that you look at and say, wow, I can't, can't imagine that that would be possible. Now, as you refine the strategy into plans, then yeah, then I think it's important to have uh, achievable goal or reasonably achievable goals that are established so that, it, that everybody's got the right expectations. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, so, so when you set these goals, like the, whether it's whether it's upfront when you're dreaming big or it's downstream when you're being pragmatic, what variables do you worry about? Are there like we we talk a lot about you know timing variables, financial variables, value based drivers, strategic goals, those those kinds of things. Does that make sense or you know what, what am I missing? Yeah, no, I think I, it could be, um, I, you know, any one, um, probably more than one, right? But I mean, a collection of those uh, from that that range you described, that, they all yeah. make sense. Yeah. Okay. Talk to me about... Um, well, I, me, uh, so uh, there are, I mean, you're talking about kind of financial, operational, um, I, share goals, I think would yep. be important to come, yep. if that's not already on that roster, I'd throw that yep. one on there. And and do you think in terms of market share or share of wallet? How do you what kind of share do you worry about? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> depends on what you know, depends what kind of business you're planning for or, or what right. kind of function you're planning for at the point in time, right? Got it. Um I mean, here, here's an example, right? You know, years ago, you know, one of the things that that HP um uh, certainly went through in the printing business was a recognition that um, HP owned uh, a very large part of the market share, right, in, in printing. Yep. Um, and and the, the general thought process was, how do we go each eke out a little bit more share? How do we get a little more efficiency and drive to the bottom line, right? And the leader of the HP business, print, uh, printing business at the time said, hey, that's all great. But the way that I think about this is, you know, we've only got a couple points of share of the entire print, you know, global print media business. Um, so if we think much bigger about yeah. goal set, then it changes the frame of thinking for us. Yep, totally agree. Um, that's interesting. So, so okay. So what about who does the planning? So in your in your world, the ideal planning team would be made up of 
what kind of creature, like what people in the organization do the planning, right? Yeah, I think I think there's a uh, you need a mix of uh, personality types. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so first of all, I think I think it's helpful to have strategists and operationalists, if you will. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. As, as part of the dialogue, there's usually a good kind of healthy tension there. Um, uh, and then then this kind of second uh, style of thought, I would say, are optimists and pessimists. Um, and, uh, you know, glass half full, glass, glass half empty. Actually, there's probably a third category, too, which is kind of the the uh, the realists. Um, yep. I, don't know. Yep. I don't know if you, you're familiar with this version of the uh, the glass uh, story, but there's the, uh, the the glass of water sitting on the table um, and a uh, finance guy walks in and he's shaking his head. He's like, that glass is half empty. Right. And the, the marketing guy kind of walks in. He's like, oh, my gosh, look at that. That glass is half full. Right. Right. And then. Then the engineer, who's you know really kind of the, the pragmatic realist and looking for everything to be efficient, it's like, gosh, that that glass is the wrong size. <laughs> right? it just fit. So maybe maybe all, kind of all three of those types, uh, I would I would kind of throw into there. The one and and then the one thing that's I think important, regardless of whether you're optimist, pessimist, or a strategist, kind of operational thinker, um, is is that you. Um, have a strong sense of empathy for um, other functional areas, uh, empathy for the customer, um, empathy for other partners in the market that uh, that would be part of your recipe, whether they're distribution channel or technology partners, suppliers. Yep. Um, because having a uh, not only an understanding but a sense of the the motivations, um, the opportunities, and the fears, and the carebouts of all of those players um, becomes very important, I think, in the dialogue about what are you going to do, right? You, what are you as an organization going to do in that context? You know, it's it's funny. I, you know, we we have a lot of you know consultants, junior staff come on board and and sort of cut their teeth at Beacon, and they ask like, what's the most important attribute I can have as a consultant? What what's the thing most likely to make me successful? And my answer, and it always surprises them, is empathy. Huh. Right? Yeah. You have to you have to be able to to in your mind be the person you're giving the advice to. Because, and I think that's true in strategy development too. I think you're spot on. Right? You, you've got you've got to imagine you know, the, the salesperson who suddenly has a new objective and a, and a new product set and a new comp plan, they have to learn and, you know, they're already busy and they're trying to manage their relationships in their world and their kids are at school. And, you know, they got like just the realities of, of the ask that you're giving them. And, and if you can do that, if you can be empathetic to that, then, you know, that translates into the probability of success. You know, when, when, when Microsoft rolled out 365, and they took this workforce that was trained for license sales and said, you are now selling recurring revenue streams. Oh, and by the way, here's your scorecard. Oh, and, you know, and, and by the way, you know, I'd really, I'm not going to measure you anymore on, on this quarterly thing. I'm looking for a recurring monthly revenue stream that grows over time. You can imagine the angst that that triggered in the organization. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think I think you're spot on, man. I think empathy is a really, really big deal. And I like the functional areas. We talk a lot about involving all of the functional leads as a necessary component, um, including what I refer to as the veto functions, which are finance and legal, right? So 
the ones that you know you you create this great plan and, and you roll it all up and everyone's excited and you go pitch it to the board and you know it gets shut down because finance says they can't afford it and legal says too risky right That's so right. Those, those are those are gone um so okay so um but, and I think, but I think that's pretty common for people to think about. I need diversity of functions in in any kind of uh, planning environment like that. Uh, but I think it's this diversity of personality types that yeah. layered on top of that. that yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, the the I think it's more common now. I know when I was when I was starting out, and you and you thought about strategy, it was very ivory tower, right? Chief strategy officer had an aura. Yeah. You know, around, around the role and and kind of was arcane in in their practice of this magic called strategy development and um so anyway I no I I totally agree um when have you when have you said no in your career to to an opera <laughs> like a strategy you were like no nah, this is not going to work yeah that, that that was the one where I was trying to find a good one and all my good ones were too recent to oh okay. <laughs> 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 we won't talk about that. Um, what are what are some of your general philosophies about growth? Give me give me some of your perspectives on growth. We well, you've already got one right, which is big bold goals, right? Like dream big, and then you know you can always come down to earth if you have to. What else? Yeah, I think uh, you know one of the other interesting things about growth. Um, you know, many times we almost, we kind of joke about, hey, what's what are we trying to do with the business next? Is it about top line or is it bottom line? And the answer yeah. is always, you know, yes, it's both. And um, uh, sometimes, though, I think we encounter businesses that are um, kind of just dominantly focused on <laughs> figuring out how to squeeze a little more efficiency out of the business. Yes, they want to get some growth and they're going to kind of dabble in that. But they're, you know, real kind of primary emphasis is on, on efficiency. And I think if, if you look across um, um, industries and especially industries that either that have been disrupted in some way, um, the efficiency play is almost never the winner. Uh, really? It is it is it's it's always um, not always, but but it is typically the companies the organizations that are focused on growth as the primary objective with an expectation that they'll deal with the efficiencies later um, that usually come out on top. Um, Can you give me an, give me an example? Um, well, I, I take, take, take uh, tech in general today, right? I mean, just look, look at um, where the kind of the big cloud providers have been focused um, we, we know that, uh, yes, they're buying at scale and therefore they've got a procurement organization that's trying to squeeze out as much cost as they can. Right. But the rest of the company, their decision make companies, their decision making is focused on how do they get the next wave of growth, right? The next kind of top line play for them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I probably got to so, think about some other so, industries to draw out other examples, well, but that's very clear to me. So I so I buy that in high growth industries, right? But once you become the number one player in an industry, you are the incumbent. There is a ton of gravity, I think, natural gravity towards defending and not losing as opposed to attacking, right? right. Just just you know, you the mindset shifts. And yeah. um and that's that's 
I don't know when I when I was a kid, my dad used to ask me, you know, he'd be like, hey, who would you rather be, Coke or Pepsi? Right. You know, Coke's number one, Pepsi's number. Who would you rather be? And, and then we'd have this. Yeah, you know, I was a little. What did I know? I was a little kid, and he would debate it with me. And um, yeah. But but I but I but I think there is like this this challenge that you have where you're you know if if you are the incumbent and you have done well and you have pursued growth and and now you're not like 500 million trying to get to a billion now you're a you're a 20 billion dollar organization trying to get to 25 billion or you're a 100 billion dollar company trying to get to 110 billion that's a materially different lift right than than um this notion of grow 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 growth because you can't do it organically at some point. At some point, you just you just fall on your face. You can't keep adding bodies and and organically developing the business because it won't scale. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, I, what do you do then? Yeah, but I but I but I think I mean I keep a corner that's uh, you know high paranoia as well. And you know even at a scale of twenty billion, I yeah. gotta gotta believe that there's somebody or somebody's that are actively working on growth strategies that are going to completely disrupt the position that I have. And and therefore, I need an engine that is focused on disrupting myself, and that engine yep. has to be high growth oriented. How how often would you expect to to be obsolete? Like uh, famous uh, Bill Gates quote, right? You know, uh, I'm, my products will be obsolete in three years. The only question is whether I do it or someone else does. <laughs> That's right, right, right? Yeah. totally spot on, right? But but that's in the software domain. You played in hardware. So the development cycles were a little longer. The life cycles were a bit longer. Yes. Um, what what was your time frame? What did you think about in terms of obsolescence or or you know that sort yeah, of a challenge? I was, I was probably on kind of a five year horizon, right? A couple okay. of product cycles um, was was realistic. Much out beyond that, um, yeah, there's so much uncertainty about the rest of the layers of the stack in the you know in the computer. Oh. Area, um, yeah. uh, you know, planet. Yeah, you, you probably need to be contemplating what might happen, right? Scenarios ten years out, but your active kind of planning probably needed to be two product cycles and in. All right, talk talk to me about business model disruption. So, you know, in your world, in your domain, uh, uh, your former your former company GreenLake, right? Uh, yeah. de- deployed. Right. It, talk to talk to me a little bit about that. The rationale for it. How it worked and what impact do you think it had in the market? Well, I mean, it's uh, still early days for GreenLake for sure, right? I think it's just, um, you know, for HPE, that is, uh, uh, it was was a um, wonderful introduction of a new business model um, that uh, was part of reinventing the company uh, into a different different kind of uh, structure in the market. Um, I think it is, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's predicated on a recognition that there's a, convergence of uh, technical capabilities um, as well as, uh, you know, general, it's, it's going to sound very broad, but general kind of societal norms about the way that we consume things, right? So much of what we as consumers do today, whether we're individuals or businesses, um, has shifted to more of a, a rent or a consumption mode with right. a kind of a variable structure to it than a and a hard asset um, ownership mode, um, you know, and it's you can kind of go back to when when cars started becoming, you know, leasing started to become, you know, more 
uh, more normal. Certainly a lot of the technology things that we we do today, media that we consume today, right? We don't buy records anymore. We just pay a rent for, um, you know, all, we, all you can eat songs every month. You can still buy records. Just and, and, uh, walk, walk down Magazine Street in New Orleans. There, you can, there, you can there, there are a few people that do that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think so, there's that, that kind of norm um, along with the um, hardware and software and especially networking capabilities that, you know, have kind of, that have been developed over the last, you know, 20 years, really, yeah. um, it reached a point where that kind of consumption model for IT um, makes so much sense. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I, I agree. I, I have this philosophy though, um, that, that like when you really boil it down, it's finance. Right. Like like, you know, as a service is really financing. It's somebody acquiring the CapEx and offering it to you on an OpEx basis for a premium fee. Right. Like very when when cloud first came out, you know, everyone was excited. Oh, cloud's going to be so much cheaper. It's not. Cloud has proven to be more expensive. It's the it's the Hotel California. Right. You can easy to get in. You can't check out of, of, of the hotel, right? Once, once you're there. And, and I don't think we are incredibly attuned to that until you try to exit, right? It's when you it, it's 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 when you become dependent on a consumption-based model and you try to move to an owned model that you really wake up to the to the cost, right? That the 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 claws are in you. Do you think that's healthy? Do you think that's like a good <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it's like, it's like, um, I, know, I was trying to explain it to someone the other day and I'm like, it's like someone saying, you know, Hey, here's a Ferrari. You can afford it. I'll finance it for 35 years. Right. And you just have to sign on the dotted line that you'll pay for it for 35 years. And here's your Ferrari. And in four years, your Ferrari is no good. So you're going to yeah. need a new Ferrari, right? Oh, well we can do that one for you, but it's a little more expensive now. Oh, and we got to get rid of this one. You know, so that whole, it's like, it just it just seems to me disingenuous. Great for the, the companies, by the way, but but really kind of a struggle for um, you know for for consumers or enterprise small small businesses in particular that become dependent on on infrastructure that um, it's very difficult to exit. So, so do, do you do you know my point? Like like if you have uh, I don't know pick a pick a vendor. Uh, I'm, I'll uh, uh, Salesforce.com. So you go to Salesforce.com. You load all of your customer data into Salesforce.com as a small business. And 12 months later, the Salesforce rep comes to you and says, "And by the way, this is all hypothetical. I haven't. This is not. This is not a true story." Salesforce rep comes to you and says, "Hey, we're we're upping the price 20 percent, right? 20 percent? Hell no! I'll go to Microsoft CRM." Uh, no, maybe you can't do that so easily, right? Maybe it doesn't port. Maybe you have to do the data transformation. Maybe you need to migrate to the new platform. I mean, the hooks in these contracts, um, once you get past the ease of, of engaging are terrifying for small business, you know, mm -hmm. would you agree with that or no? Like Cliff, you're, eh, I don't think you're representing it appropriately. What, what are your yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of reality to that. Um, 
don't know whether it's a, um, how much of it is by design and how much of it is just an inherent kind of element of the model. Yeah. Um, if I think about kind of purchased products, right, as a, as a marketeer for products that are purchased, um, you're constantly worrying about how do I get the repeat purchase? I know that yeah. I know this customer is going to make a decision in the future to yeah. replace or add more. How do I make sure that it's me? Um, and then in this case, uh, in the kind of as a service type of model, um, I think the emphasis is much more on how do I retain that customer to keep them from uh, switching? And part of that could be thrill the customer because there's so much capability they would never want to switch. Um, That's the carrot. That's the other, the other side of the equation. Yeah, the other side of the equation is the stick, right? Or the, or the the claws. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And I, you know, I I I encourage if people are listening to this, I encourage them to really dig into and think through business models from a planning perspective on not only the and I think you raise a great point, right? Not only the negative lock-ins, right? Like the you know the the atomic bomb rationale for having to stay but 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 that notion of excellence of service and you know may, maybe you know demand driven uh tenure as opposed to as, as opposed to a forced tenure all right i'm going to shift gears you were nice enough to give me i asked i asked you to do some homework and you were <laughs> nice enough to do a little bit of homework for me. I'm going to, I'm going to share that Tom. I'm going to send you this. You're good. Yeah. This is going to be your, here, hold on. I'm going to put your head up here so I can see you. Um, I hate, you know, this whole, uh, where you are on the screen matters, whether I'm, I'm looking at you. So, so what we did Tom is, um, we asked you four questions. We said, look, there are really four questions. We think you have to game out when you, when you build strategies and tactics and, um, we think these are the four questions because, you know, as a firm, we've done over 1400 projects in the past 20 years, and we've, we've sort of proven that these are the high risk, high reward, get these right. And you do well, get these wrong and it can be terminal for you, um, mm -hmm. either in a business unit or at a, at a, at a company level. So, um, the other thing I want you to think about as you go through this is wargaming out what competitors are up to. These are just four straightforward questions that you could proxy how someone else is going to behave, right? What their revenues, where their revenues are going to come from uh, using these four questions. Yeah. So when, when you and I went to business school, this is the best you got, right? This was the two by two, the revenue matrix, right? You this, this is the only source of revenue for any business in the world. You either have existing customers or new customers, and you either sell them something you already do or have or something new. That's it. You know, mm. end, of, end of story. And so if I take your answers, which you said 70% existing, 100% existing, uh, existing customers, 100% existing geographies, 80% existing goods, so 20% new product introduction, um, and, and, uh, Existing business model, you said 60%. So, so fairly disruptive here on, on the approach to the market. We'll get to those other two. But if I just look at customers and services, this says, look, 42% of your product is milking the cow. It's just existing customer, existing goods and service, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, probably a, that's probably a pretty, this is a very, by the way, very healthy ratio, I think, the way this lays out. 
So you got 42% from existing, 28% that you're going to you're going to just add new things. About a third of your revenues are going to be new products and services that you sell to existing customers. That makes a lot of sense because the risk of acquiring a new customer, the the cost, the level of investment is very difficult. And then for for your company because there are only so many customers, it's important to protect that core. So um you know, th- th- this is this is a a, a legitimate uh, number. The if you can see my cursor, the um, uh, new customer acquisition. That's sort of a classic sales thing. That's just salespeople going out and targeting new customers um, with your existing offering, right? That's that's share grab. Sometimes it's you know you're you'll be functionally better. Sometimes you'll compete on price. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but bottom line is it's, it's classic hand-to-hand sales combat, you know, um, the, the, the innovation piece, the going after a new customer with a new offering, that's, that's, that's where you become really interesting, right? Because that's, um, activity where you're taking sustainable share. Right. And and what'll happen is next year or whatever your next planning period is, that 12% rolls down into the existing customer 42%. Because right. it's an existing product and it's, you know, and so there's always this movement of customer flow through here. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Yep. And there's there's a tr- there's a tremendous uh, center of energy in the defend and grow once you become a company of scale that competes over time. So this is great for reporting. The board will love it. Investors would look at this and be like, woohoo, great. But we need to plan, right? Because we're trying to teach people how to plan. So, so how do you translate this into a device, a tool that a new practitioner or an, or an experienced practitioner that wants to teach you know, strategy development to a, a company can use? We use the growth framework. And in the, and in the growth framework, we take the four questions. existing customers, 100% existing geos, 80% existing goods and services, 60% existing business models. And we map it against, excuse me, uh, by by, uh, layer in the tree, we map it against um, the variables. And so so this, this decision tree emerges, it has 16 pathways, and these are the exhaustive consideration of ways that any company can grow. Right. And 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 they are mutually exclusive. There's there's some similarities. There there's some things that you can leverage a marketing initiative that will play across multiple pathways, for example, or or a product type will play across multiple pl- pathways. But at the end of the day, um, the intent of this exercise is to show you that uh, six of the sixteen pathways represent ninety four percent of your revenue, mm-hmm. just six. So that means. 10 of them don't represent the, the most they got is 6%. And actually, let's see, one, two, three, four, no, yeah. five, six, seven, eight of them have zero uh, income associated with them. So, yeah. So, the, you know, I mean, you, you tell me as a, as a planner, how good is it to know what you shouldn't focus on? Uh, if that, that's more important than what you should focus on. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, and, yeah. and that's what the tool is meant to do. It's to illustrate there are these no-brainer things that you should do, right? Yeah. 
but 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 there but there are also these no-brainer things you should not do right. and um so that's the first use of the tool the second use of the tool is if you have the growth goal the revenue goal the margin goal the share goal whatever whatever it is the 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 the, the metric that you've applied um i can tell you how much you should get from each pathway so you know if the goal's a hundred million dollars in revenue, right, of growth, I, or you know, of, no, actually of revenue. Sorry, total revenue pie. I can tell you, thirty-three million of that should come just from doing what you're doing. Just grow, just core business, existing customer, existing geo, existing offering, existing model. Milk the cow, thirty-three percent. And then, what's what's unusual for you versus all the other looks that I've done? Recently, these inter interviews we're doing is is the is is this row here fifteen being that high? Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I think it is the most underutilized tool in a planner's toolkit. Is the power of a disruptive model. Mm -hmm. Now, usually, usually, if you're the incumbent, that is an indicator that you're under threat from someone who's doing it differently from you. Usually you could be really evolved and, and mentally doing this to attack and take share in the market. But oftentimes, especially for large, you know, share owners, the, where they're, where they get attacked is by younger, more nimble, more creative entities that don't have the burden of the legacy infrastructure. Right. Yes. So, so you have to you have to respond to that, and that right there is Microsoft 365, mm -hmm. right? Gmail, Google Apps were out. Enterprise customers were starting to onboard with them. It was clear they were losing share, and they were losing share rapidly. Right, and, and that was a def you know it, as much as it was an offensive play, it was a defensive play. They were forced by Google to do this. Is that is that healthy? I think it is. I mean, I think. Yeah, I think, and I think the magic there is how do you take something that is in, uh, critical or a strategic imperative as a defensive play and and actually make that part of your offense. And they and they did right. Yep. I mean, it's 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 been a it's been a great execution to watch. Yeah. Um, and and you know. The, the 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 bolt on piece to this time, and you know this because we've gone through the the process before. Um, you get revenues, you put strategies and tactics to achieve the revenues. You can measure the tactics at a financial layer. That that actually lets you generate ROI by pathway, and that's mm -hmm. a that's a thing that's really hard to do when you're developing a growth plan because it tends to get really murky, and you get you get lost in the marketing mix and you know, people don't like to commit to how much revenue will actually be associated with each, um, you know, strategy. But in in our model, we can do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, we'll send you this. I, I I want I encourage you to think about as you. So that's the primary use. The secondary use would be as you war game what competitors will do. Four questions: What are competitors going to do? And you can piece that together. From secondary research, you can do some primary research. You can just use your gut on what they've done in the past, and that will tell you what their competitive, 
the likely competitive behavior will be. And you can start to use that to really play it off of your plan and, and you know, sort of think two, three chess moves out, which is uh, so, so important as you go through this. Yeah, perfect. All right. So what, what, what didn't we talk about that you think a new practitioner should know? Here's the, one of the things that I think is um, uh, common in planning processes, um, you know, many times people will do a SWOT analysis right up front, yep. right? And analyzing their competitors, but also as, of themselves, right? And so there's an assessment of what are we good at? What are we not good at? Um, that's part of that. And, and I think that intuitively that makes sense, right? You want to make sure that you're planning from a position of good self-awareness. But um, in the, if you kind of subscribe to this, a having some big, crazy goals out there yeah. to stimulate the thinking process and the dialogue process is a good thing. Um, I would also offer that I think that self-analysis early on is more of a limiter than an enhancer. Interesting. Um, and, okay. and I, it's necessary, um, but but I prefer to do it after we've contemplated kind of that almost that list that you know that, that your uh, um, framework that you we just went through. Um, after we've contemplated what we think it's going to take to win, then I like to do an assessment of okay, where are we aligned to that, and where are we gapped. Got it. And and where we're gapped doesn't necessarily become a reason to cross off a box. It may turn into the action plan to go fill the gap because we some resource. That, yeah. that path is so critical to us. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. Um, important part of the recipe, but the timing in the flow, I think, is is equally important. Yep. Uh, there's there's a great uh, book you you may have read it. It's one of my formative books called Soul of a New Machine. Did you ever familiar read that? With it, familiar with it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. Yeah. Tracy Kidder talks yeah. about how he he at at Deck they took a team of of young developers and and uh, engineers, locked them off site and and created I don't I think it was the eighty two eighty six or eighty three eighty six processor, and um, you know in competition with the traditional you know self aware engineering behemoth of the company. Yeah. And um, it's just a magnificent book if you if you get a chance to read it. It's really it's really awesome. Look, Tom, I I want to thank you. You you as usual, you you know you've you've added layers and and um, you know a different perspective to my thinking. And I I think you know certainly for anyone listening to this, they'll get that benefit as well. And um, I can't wait to uh, incorporate it into the book. So th thank you so much for uh, the time and 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 the insight. You know, it's great. You're welcome, Cliff. Hey, thanks for including me in your, your circle of, uh, of fun here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Growing the Top Line. For more information about growth strategies and to learn about our firm, please go to beacongroupconsulting.com. That's B-E-A-C-O-N-G-R-O-U-P consulting.com. And if you're interested in the book Growing the Top Line, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble.